Good morning. If you're here for the first time, uh, it's just great to have you with us this morning. Thanks for coming. My name is Dave, and I'm the pastor preaching here at Four Oaks. And you know, you, uh, you may attend to other churches that do many things better than us, but you will never attend a church that appreciates your visit more than you being here with us this morning. So thanks for coming if you're a guest. Also, you picked a fantastic time to join us because we are in the front, on the front end of a new series out of the epistle of 2 Corinthians. In fact, you can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. Uh, the title of this series is Weak is Strong. Weak is Strong. And so we're going to plug in this morning at chapter 2. And while you're opening your Bibles, I wanted to reference back to um, the weekly that Pastor Paul sent out for the benefit of the guests. Our weekly is a, a weekly blog that the pastors do, and, and Paul did one this past week. And, you know, as I was reading the content of the blog, as Paul summarized just some of the things that have taken place over the past year, how, how more than 100 folks from this local church are attending each week Bible studies that take place there are 38 fellowship groups with under four, over 400 people that are attending each and, and every week, that uh, we have scores of people that are serving the pro-life community here, right here in, in Tallahassee, and, and as a local church, through our partnership with Sojourn Network, we're involved in upwards of 15 church plants right now. You know, I read that stuff, and I was just freshly affected and thankful to God for you. Thankful to God for, for your faithfulness as a local church, for your commitment to Jesus, for your commitment to serve each other, for your giving to this local church. And I was just thinking about what a privilege it is to be able to pastor a church like that. And I just wanted to express to you my thankfulness to God for you this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Title of this morning's message is Triumphant Slavery. Triumphant Slavery. Let's look at verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of a knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are reminded this morning that heaven and earth may pass away, but your word remains forever. And so we pray today that that you would do for us through your word what can only be accomplished by your Holy Spirit, that you would implant it, that you would imprint it upon our hearts, that it might live with us forever as a result of our time together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the presidential elections are a fascinating study on how people perceive leadership. Republican debates, Democratic debates, doesn't really matter. As we think about the debates and we think about the statement of leadership they make, it typically starts this way. The candidates are all dressed the same way as they're kind of strewn across the stage. The men will wear dark suits with bright ties because polling has proven that that communicates leadership, that communicates resolve, it communicates competence. Women kind of have their own version of that, that, that look that kind of favors them. And when called upon, the candidates will inevitably advocate for why they are most qualified, why they are better than anybody else on the stage. They will trumpet their achievements. They will talk about their successes. They will parade their vulnerabilities. Uh, If given the opportunity, they will expose the weaknesses of other candidates. Some will even demean and berate, but, you know, it's it's just politics. It's no blood, no foul. But the entire design, the entire strategy is to portray themselves as capable, as competent, and of course to to portray their opponents as weak and inept. And again, it's nothing personal. It's just the way the fallen world chooses leaders. We want dark suits and dimpled sound bites because it's how the world sees strength. Now, never has the book of 2 Corinthians, or is the book of 2 Corinthians, more countercultural or counterintuitive than in an election year. Because emerging from the pages of this epistle is a vision of leadership and of leadership strength that is far closer to the cross than it is the capital. And it's all. All of it is coming from a man who lived constantly at risk of being toppled from the role that God had given him. And, of course, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Now, we learned last week that there was a leader in the Corinthian church, and he attempted a kind of coup where he launched a campaign to call for the re-election of, of himself over Paul. And so he's trying to move Paul to the side. But that wasn't the only problem, because as we've been studying through chapter 1 and we're into chapter 2, we also learned a few weeks back that Paul had been overthrown by an affliction that he had in Asia, where he described that he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. Pretty soon, in just a few weeks, we're going to meet a group called the Super Apostles. 
And the super apostles are these intruders into the Corinthian church that are seeking to depose Paul. They're seeking to appoint themselves in Paul's position. And so Paul was in the season of life where everybody, in a sense, is turning against him, and everybody combating him, everybody attacking him, is doing it in a similar manner. They're saying, he's not a leader. Look at his appearance. Look at his speech. Check out the way he dresses. He's got no letters of commendation. And when they form the attack ads on television, it always ends up with the same fundamental idea, the same fundamental attack, and that is, Paul is weak. He's weak. And so verse 12 of chapter 2 is where Paul's defense of this criticism begins to take shape. It is right here in chapter 2, verse 12, that Paul starts to lay the foundation for his rebuttal. And he first gives us a sense of trajectory for the defense that he's going to to make. And the trajectory for this defense, to be honest, sounds utterly insane. Because as these men are disputing Paul's competence and his credentials and his abilities whatsoever, Paul's basically going to make this defense. He's basically going to come back at them saying this. He's going to say, you think I'm weak? I'm weaker than you can possibly imagine. I'm weaker than you can ever dream to be weak. I am gloriously weak. And no one expects that to happen. And no one is anticipating that response. I mean, can you imagine if just one of the candidates at the next debate basically opened the debate saying, hey, before anybody shares, I'd just like to pass along a few weaknesses that I'm encountering right now. I mean, we have no categories for that kind of thing to go on. But here, Paul tips his hand on a theme that as we continue to go through 2 Corinthians, is going to become more prominent. It's going to become more baffling. And eventually, Paul's going to sum it all up by talking about how he, in life, in leadership, boasts in his weakness. That's where he's going to go to. So his defense starts right here in verse 12. And he's going to make a point in this entire section that could be summarized probably in the best way by saying, this is what Paul is saying, I'm a broken man who's enslaved to Christ. That's what Paul's saying in this section. You want to put it in a sentence, I'm a broken man who is enslaved by Christ. Now you read this and you think, hang on, Dave, where is that coming from? I don't see that anywhere. All I see is Paul giving this history lesson about Macedonia and Troas and talking about some triumph and whatever that's supposed to mean. Well, let's dig around a little bit and let's see if we can discover how Paul is saying, I'm a broken man who is enslaved in Christ. Look at verse 12 and 13. We're going to, I mean, this, this, is, this message is basically organized. What is the ground of Paul's defense? It's I'm a broken man who's enslaved in Christ. Let's talk about being a broken man first. Verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul, right out of the gate, he's talking about Troas and Macedonia. And this is not just some kind of random history lesson. 
What Paul is doing here that is so utterly unique, so utterly counterintuitive, is that Paul is talking about a time of great weakness for him. Paul had sent Titus to Corinth. He had sent Titus to Corinth to discover what happened as a result of him sending the severe letter. Remember we talked about the severe, the sorrowful letter. Second letter Paul wrote to correct the Corinthians for not responding to the leader that was attacking Paul. That letter has been lost to us in history. But Paul didn't know what had happened after he sent that letter. So he sent Titus to check it out and to find out how it landed on them. Because Paul was burdened. He was worried. He was anxious. Would the, would the Corinthians, this, this church that he fathered, this church that he loved, this church that he had labored in, would they, would they reject him? Would they betray him? Or were they responding to the Lord? He didn't know. But he knew that having sent Titus there, that Titus in returning would pass back through Troas, And so he went to Troas to intercept him there because he couldn't wait. He didn't want to wait any longer. So he went to Troas, but Titus never showed. Look at verse 13. He says, so so my, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave and went on to Macedonia. So he, he, goes to, he goes to Troas. He's looking for Titus. He's waiting for Titus. He's anxious about Titus. He's anxious for news for the, about the Corinthians. And Titus never showed, which basically jacked up the, the anxiety level on Paul from about a four to an eight to the point where he is, he uses the word restless, which is just another way to say he's anxious. He's in turmoil. He doesn't know what to do. His spirit is turbulent. It's turning over. He doesn't know where to turn. In fact, if you want to understand how preoccupying this became for Paul, just focus on what he says in verse 12 and the last half, verse 13. He basically says, a door was opened for me in the Lord, but I took leave of it. And I went on to Macedonia. Are you serious? That, that, that phrase, a door was open, that's one that Paul would occasionally use in his writings. In fact, it's the most frequently used phrase to describe the way that Paul would describe a divinely appointed opportunity by the Spirit of God. So Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. He, he tells them, I'm going to stay in, the, the, in Ephesus because a door has opened wide for me for the gospel. He tells the Colossians in Colossians chapter 4 to pray for him that a door might open wide for him in the gospel. But here we have Paul, I mean the writer of the majority of the New Testament, the only man in the history of the world that could type on, in his Facebook bio, been to the third heaven, done that. The only one that has these kind of credentials, but he is too weak to move towards an opportunity that the Spirit of God has thrown open before him. You know what, let's just tap the brakes a little bit and slow down so we can consider what's really being said here. God opened the door for the gospel to Paul, but he did not walk through. Why? Because he was too anxious. 
He was unable to, to put a rope around his fears and pull them in a little bit. His mind was working overtime. He couldn't sit still. He couldn't stop thinking about it. I wonder if any of you could relate to that place that Paul was in this morning. But you know what's one of the most unexpected things about this account, the most unexpected effects of this weakness, is that for Paul, the feeling was so intense, he did what we would think for Paul is the unthinkable. He lost interest in a door that God had opened for him. He had come to a place in that life where he was so frail, so broken, so anxious, that he was limited in his service to God. And what's more, he's honestly telling the Corinthians about it. I mean, it's one thing to experience that. It's another thing to write it for other people and let them get a look at your moment of weakness. He just didn't have anything to give. He couldn't keep going. He couldn't take advantage of the opportunity. I wonder if there's any moms here this morning that feel like they're in that place right now. You just don't have anything more to give. The opportunities are all around. The doors are open, but it's just not there. And here's the thing for Paul is, it didn't stop with him leaving Troas. So he, he says, I, I got to do something. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go on to Macedonia. Maybe I can meet him in Macedonia. And so he does that. And a little later on, about five chapters later, he reports upon his arrival in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, where he says, quote, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every, every turn, listen to this, fighting without and fear within. Here's my question for you. Why did Paul go there? Why there? In fact, he doesn't even end it there. In chapter 11, after he lists all the sufferings that he went through. Have you ever read that section of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Countless beatings, he said. He says, here's a little slice of my life, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I've been stoned and left for dead. And then as he gets to the end of that section, he says, and apart from all of that, apart from suffering in those ways, he says, there is a daily pressure of anxiety upon me for the churches. Apart from all those beatings I took, there's something that's even worse. There's this thing with anxiety that I have when it comes to the churches. Here's my question for you this morning. Why would Paul want us to know that? Why does Paul want us to know about all of this? You know, sometimes we create a kind of caricature of Paul as kind of a hard-driven type A leader who's, who's impervious to all the stresses and challenges that he experiences. But that's not how Paul wants us to see him. He wants us to see him the way he is, which is a broken man. I mean, he started this whole book in chapter 1 by talking to the Corinthians about a time that he despaired of life. I mean, that is such a weighted phrase, despaired of life. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever considered suicide? I don't want to import that into Paul's experience. I'm not immediately assigning that to Paul, but I think 
part of that experience of considering suicide is that you despair of life. I mean, next time you feel depressed, next time you feel hopeless, next time you are despairing of life, just remind yourself, Paul's been there. Paul can relate to that. And Paul talked about it. It was something that he shared freely, openly. He wasn't fearful for other people to know about it. For you men here that are, you know, kind of reluctant to share about where you struggle, where you might be weak, you know, the difficulties that you have, I want to suggest to you that may not be because you're just a noble soul that doesn't want to burden wife and family and friends with the burdens that you carry. I mean, if you're anything like me, it's just because you're proud. It's just because you, like me, love to parade your strengths and conceal your weaknesses. We don't want to talk. And yet here we have a man, quite a specimen, I want to suggest. And he's under criticism for being weak, and he's responding to that criticism by saying, you think I'm weak? You don't know the half of it. Let me tell you how weak I am. Now, you're going to understand why he's going there, and that's going to unfold even more in the weeks to come. But that's where he's starting, and they don't even get it. They don't even understand And what I want to remind us of this morning is that it had the same effect upon the Corinthians as it has upon you and me right now, which is that we're thinking like, wow, what security this man must live out of. What an understanding of God he must have. And you know what's absent from this account as I read it? is nowhere is God stepping into this and saying, in Macedonia, wait a minute, Paul, you don't get how this works. You got no blessing there in Macedonia. If you want to deal with blessing from me, go back to Troas, because may I remind you, you did nothing in Troas. In fact, you had prayed for doors to open. I throw a door open in Troas. It's wide open. You do nothing. And then you come to me talking about your fears and your anxieties as if I'm supposed to respond to that, as if I'm the one who's supposed to resolve all of that problem. No, Paul, it doesn't work that way. You go sit on the bench. No, no, there's nothing like that. It's, it's more God saying, my child, you are weak and you are worried. Trust me. Oh, and by the way, here's Titus. Everything's fine in Corinth. Now, keep your legs moving. Go back to work. In other words, God supplied for him in his weakness. You know, I spoke to men just a second ago. Let me talk to you this morning if you're here as a leader, a man or a woman, um, leading within the church, leading outside of the church, wherever. <clears throat> you know, one of the most surprising things about Christian leadership or being a leader and a Christian is how God often takes strong people and pulverizes them to the point that they're weak. In fact, maybe a better way to say that is God takes folks who are dependent upon natural gifts and natural abilities, and he throws at them trials, and he throws at them disappointments and betrayals and delays and defections and depression until they they discover that in reality they are weak so that he can make them strong. You know, if someone were to ask me about 
the biggest surprise that I've had in leadership over the last 29 years, I would respond by saying, I never thought my strengths could become so dangerous and my weaknesses could be so glorious. I never thought my strengths could be so dangerous and my weaknesses so glorious. In other words, I never imagined, in, in a thousand years, I could have never imagined that, that smuggled within the gift of leadership would be a kind of smug self-assurance that my leadership could solve all of my problems, that my leadership could solve my problems with my sin, that my leadership could, could resolve the challenges that we have with the kids or in relationships or with the church or whatever it might be, that the very strengths I possess could somehow become a carrier for a godless confidence, a godless confidence. Or contrary to that, that nestled within my weakness could be this inexplicable grace that ultimately delivers the power of God to me. And see, that's where Paul's going. He's going to unravel this whole divine irony to us and, 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 and let us know that the secret of strength is not rooted in our ability. It's rooted actually in our inability. It's not rooted in our ability. It's rooted actually in God's ability, which means we never have to feel the burden of portraying ourselves as the best candidates to be voted for wearing the right suits and the right ties. No. It's, it's more about being like Paul. It's more about being honest about our brokenness, which is why Paul's defense begins with, I'm a broken man who's enslaved to Christ. So we've talked about brokenness. I'm a broken man. Now let's move into the second half, which is who is enslaved to Christ and in pursuing that motif, I, wanna, I just want to pay careful attention together to the use of what I think is an astonishing illustration that Paul seizes a hold of to portray his and our brokenness together. In verse 14, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession, triumphal procession. Now, at first glance, we see that, that phrase, that sentence, and the passage almost seems to celebrate a, a, a triumphant life, you know, the, the kind of promise that might be used by faith teachers to say that, that behind your problems today, march this train of prosperity if you will just believe. You're, you're in this train of, of God's blessing if you will just believe. But what we need to understand about this passage is that a triumph, quote-unquote, is not a spiritual state. A triumph, as it's used by Paul, was a literal thing. It was a Roman custom where a victorious general would parade through the streets, and, and there were, the custom was very designated for what happened at each phase, and as part of the phase, the captains, the slaves that were captured during the battle would be paraded through the streets as well, and the event was called a triumph. 
And the slaves, those captured, would be paraded through the streets as a sign of their newfound subjection to their new masters. Now, even that, we hear that illustration, we say, well, yeah, that works. In other words, Christ is the victor. He leads us, and we are in his armies. We are captains and generals and lieutenants and majors, and we are in procession walking behind Christ. Not exactly. Not exactly. Because the word translated there, triumphal procession, is used only one other time in the New Testament, and that is in Colossians Colossians chapter 2, Verse 15, and I want to read that to you, where Paul says to the Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, listen, by triumphing over them in him. So here, triumphing over them, same word, exact same word. But it clearly means, again in this verse, that the demonic forces who are in the triumph, are not the army in the triumph. They are the captives in the triumph. And so Paul is is not here portraying his strength as the victorious captain under the Lord Jesus who is leading the triumph. No. Paul is here talking about having been captured by Jesus having become a servant in subjection to Jesus, having had the Savior himself defeat him on on the Damascus road, take him captive so that he now serves as a slave in the train of a triumphant Savior who leads him into a triumphant kind of suffering. See, Paul says, my call is not to dark suits and sound bites about the strengths in my life. It's about having the work of the cross reproduced within me. And so Paul comes right out of the gate, talking about his enslavement in Christ, saying, we are slaves called to march in the triumph. That's what we're all about. And again, this is his defense this is where Paul's defending himself, and he's, he's, he's both trying to, to push back the, those who are opposing him and educate the Corinthians at the same time. And so he's saying, Corinthians, you're completely misunderstanding my role. You're completely misunderstanding what leadership is all about. We are slaves called to march in the triumph. But check this out. The march, the march is not some kind of morbid and morose march along the way, because in verse 14, he starts with the words, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. In other words, this gratitude is not some kind of servile, self-loathing about this role he has as a slave in the triumph of Jesus. No, he, for, for Paul, this triumph has a specific purpose, that as he's marching Behind Jesus, as a slave, God's parading him in his weakness, and that weakness uncorks an aroma before God. In fact, let's read about this. Verse 14 through 16, Paul says, quote, Thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession, 
and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, just to continue this this visual that Paul is pulling forward of the triumph. In, In the triumph, the priest would come in first, and the priest would be near the front, and they would be carrying censers filled with incense. So this fragrance would be wafting through the air. And while that was happening and the triumph was going through the streets, the people that were lined up on both sides would be throwing garlands out into the street so that the slaves, those that were captive, would walk over the garlands. And what would break open was this fragrance that would fill the air. And the effect of all of it was that as the slaves trampled, it released an aroma. And so it's almost like God is, God is saying, listen, this is my strategy. Your place in my triumph spreads a fragrance about me. Don't worry about the trampling. The trampling is part of being a slave. The trampling is part of being my servant. And this is Paul's point to the Corinthians as well. Don't worry about the trampling. Your march releases an aroma. Your march releases something that can be obtained and can be released in no other way than you being in that triumph. In fact, Paul's already already illustrated this by taking us through just the first two two chapters. He said, be it my affliction in Asia, which I was so utterly burdened beyond my strength that I despaired of life itself. Be it the man who opposed me in the Corinthian church. Be it the leaders who misrepresent me and undermine me. It doesn't matter. As I march in the triumph, it releases an aroma. And that aroma that Paul later calls the treasure of the gospel, that aroma resides, and Paul's going to use this, use this picture pretty soon, in, in, in jars of clay. And to get at the treasure, you must break the jar. And actually, that's, that's the next sub-point under this enslaved to Christ. The first was we are slaves called to march in the triumph. The second is we are slaves that carry a gospel aroma. God says, I put the gospel aroma in you, but your strength corks it. It keeps it corked. People just see you. They don't, they don't smell the aroma because they, you fill the room. They get nothing of me. You're too big. The, the aroma that, that Paul is talking about is, is, is the gospel fragrance, and God wants to uncork it. But it only comes through brokenness. It only comes through weakness. You say this morning, but God, I was running so strong before this happened. I was running so strong before this illness Or I was running so strong before this one person came into my life, this this one situation, this one circumstance that will not be resolved. God says, no, I, I get it. I put him there. No, I understand. I'm allowing that to happen because it's not about your strength. It's about my fragrance. It's not about your strength. It's about my aroma. I'm breaking the jar to uncork the aroma. 
You say, God, I never thought that this season would be like this. I never thought this season would be so hard. I feel like I've lost my strength. God says, you have lost your strength. I'm breaking the jar to release the aroma. It's how I'm getting at the work that I want to do through you and in you. But first, you need to walk the triumph. Walk the triumph. Walk it out. Because there's an aroma I want to release in your life. Again, that aroma, in fact, we don't need to just fill that with any, any meaning. Paul uses, Paul basically defines the aroma in verse 14. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads, this is the aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. That's the aroma. The fragrance of the knowledge of him. And that spreads as we are broken. I mean, go figure. See, that's where Paul's going. Paul's not just saying, you know what, God just has his own way of doing things, and he gets some kick out of breaking you. He just likes his people to feel puny, to feel like they're insignificant, to feel like they're powerless. He wants to always make sure that we know that we're human, and he's divine, and he's going to do anything he can to keep you in your place. No, no, Paul's saying, no, It's, it's more beautiful than that. It's more eternal than that. You're breaking results in the aroma being released, the aroma of God's gospel fragrance. And to some, it's a fragrance from life to life, and for others, it's a fragrance from death to death. And each time you serve in the name of Jesus, each time we swallow our fears, or we share the gospel, or we make a stand for Jesus in some way, the aroma gets released. I know a man in this church right now who is here because he saw the effect of gospel brokenness in the life of another man. And in the world that these two guys worked in, you don't do broken. Broken doesn't fit in that world. Broken is for losers. Brokenness reveals weakness. But but this one man, as he observed this other man in the middle of a very serious situation, he could not deny that there was some kind of transformation going on in the man, this acquaintance that he had. He couldn't deny that there was some kind of transformation going on as the gospel was being applied in his heart in a very serious situation. So he set up a lunch with him, and he just said, what's going on? What's different about you? And this man was able to share with him, I march in the triumph. I'm being broken by God. But what he was unaware of is it's releasing an aroma. Other people are smelling it. It's affecting them. I'm so grateful to God for the number of men and women in this church that have a vision to work in the marketplace as real Christians, to be an aroma, to be a fragrance out there in the world. Because every step for the gospel creates some kind of fragrance. Every Every time we make a stand, it creates some kind of fragrance. Every time we plant the flag, every time we make a profession, it makes some kind, it releases some kind of, of fragrance. You know, it's, it's reported that Chris Harper Mercer, who was the Oregon shooter, as 
as he walked into one room, he announced within that room, if you're a Christian here, I want you to stand up right now. And several people stood. I mean, again, this is the Pacific Northwest. This is one of the most godless parts of the country. I mean, just imagine today somebody grabs you, puts a gun to your head and says, right now I want to hear, do you believe in Jesus? That's what was going on. And these several people that stood, he, he walked up to them and said, good, I'm, I'm glad you believe in God. You're about to meet him. And he pulled the trigger. You look at that in the natural and it just seems like some kind of tragic waste. What could be the meaning of that? What significance could come of that? But I'll tell you one thing, is that there is a very godless part of the country that is, that is, that is smelling the aroma of Jesus. That is hearing a story that's smelling a fragrance, that's catching something that they have never smelled in a long time. Now to some people, of course, they hear this. Some people like Chris Harper Mercer, that profession was num- nothing but a poisonous fume of death. But to others, that aroma, that gospel fragrance in the words and life of his people, the words and life of broken people, that aroma will testify of a Savior so glorious that he is worthy of even our greatest sacrifice, that he is worthy even of our life. But you know what the reality is? The reality is that for most of us, that day will never come. The reality is that for most of us, we walk in the triumph each and every day in the rhythm of our life, at our jobs, in our homes, as a mom, as a dad, as a brother, as a sinner, as a church member, as a worker. We're just walking in the triumph. We are broken people walking in the triumph that God has placed where he has that we might release an aroma. And that's why Paul goes where he goes in verse 16. That's why he says, who is sufficient for these things? Like that's the last point. We, that's the last sub-point. We are slaves that feel insufficient. We are slaves called to march in the triumph. We are slaves that carry a gospel aroma. And we are slaves that feel insufficient. Because, because it's like Paul can't make sense of any of this. He's saying, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who can walk the triumph? Who can live in a fallen world that that celebrates strength in brokenness? Who can bear this aroma of life and death, the responsibility of it? Who can bear that? And that's why in verse 17, he immediately goes to those who are opposing him, those peddlers, quote unquote. He says, we're not like them. We're not like the peddlers of the word of God. Corinthians, you've got to see this. We're not like them. We're not like the peddlers. You've got to see the difference. We walk a different road. We speak sincerely. We speak as commissioned by God. We speak for Jesus Christ. And Paul's question is as important for us to answer as it was for Paul and the Corinthians to answer. Who is sufficient for these things? And there really only is one answer. And it's not us. It's God. None are sufficient but the Savior of the world. Only the one who incarnated, only the one 
who took on the clay jar of a body and walked a life of perfect obedience so that he conformed to all of the laws at all things at all times. Only the one who was faithful where we failed, who loved where we lusted, only the one who came and walked with a cross in a parade of shame towards an inevitable death, bearing the rejection upon him and the guilt that was upon us, placed upon him, only one who suffered because of his obedience all the way to being nailed to the cross, only the one where then at the cross he hung suspended between two worlds as the Father broke him with his wrath, crushed him, ripped him apart so that an aroma might be released. An aroma of salvation that reaches all the way through the years. And we smell it here this morning. The aroma of life. And somehow, amazingly, somehow, indescribably, our weakness, the triumph that we walk in each and every day, becomes a place of strength. I mean, go figure. How does that work? It's astounding. And, and, and here's the thing. In chapter 2, in this section that, that we just studied this morning, Paul has only begun to talk about the mystery of weakness. The Corinthians have no idea of what's to hit them in the chapters to come. We have no idea what's coming at us about weakness in the chapters to come. Paul was ultimately going to dazzle them with this mystery of weakness by informing them that weakness results not simply in strength, but weakness results in power. That there's only, way that the, there's only one way that the power of God comes, and it's the power of God working through the grace of God through the weakness of men and women. That, that strength is not seen in debates, and in dark suits, and dimpled sound bites that come and roll off the tongue. But it's often seen in the darkest moments of one's life. And if you're wondering, how in the world is Paul going to get there? Well, you'll just have to come back next week. Let's pray. <laughs>